So you do what you are, sort of entitled the message this morning. You know, if you ask anybody today what they are, most of us are going to answer with what we do for a living. Or I said, Joseph, what are you? It's, oh, I'm a carpenter. I said, John, what are you? I'm, I'm a street sweeper. I'm a teacher. I'm a, a teller. I'm, a, I'm, a engine, I'm an IT guy. Maybe that's not what they call you. I don't know what, you, what your title is. Why don't you quit teasing your husband, Monique? He's providing for the family. Be proud of him. Praise God. But most of us will answer with what we do. We say, say what, you know, what are you? So I'm, I'm, this is what I do for a living is what I am. We identify ourselves by what we do. You know, I'll tell people that I'm a pastor, I'm a network engineer when people ask me what I am. But the truth is, that's not what we are. What we do does not define who we are. You know, if you look back in history, you look at different people's last names, a lot of times that was based on what they are. You know, you see these last names that are pretty common, like Baker and Carpenter, Smith, Farmer. These are all common last names, but it's because that they picked up a surname based on what they did. They, it actually defined what they were. You guys used to be fountains, the Fuentes family. That's all you guys did was just spit water out on the side of the street. That's how it started. <laughs> yeah. You know... And other of us might identify ourselves by stuff like they might say, I'm a musician or I'm an artist. You know, but it's so common for us to identify ourselves by what we do. And there's actually very few things, if you think about it, that identify us by what we are. The, as I was trying to think about ways that we might identify ourselves by what we are, the few things that I can think of is maybe race or gender. You know, I'm, I'm a man or I'm a woman. That's what you are. That's not what you do. You didn't get to pick that. And then I was looking through history, but there are some people that actually based their identity on, on who they, they were and not what they did. If you look at Scottish clans, that comes to mind as they, they had the different clans. It was based on families, who they were and not what they did. And actually, these clan chieftains that they, they covered and they ruled over a large area of land, even the people that lived there that weren't blood-related, because that's how all these clans actually started, was a blood relation through the years. But there would be people that would, that would move into the clan's territory and actually the people that weren't blood-related would oftentimes take on the name of the clan because they were now part of the clan. They were identified by who they were, uh, who they, how they were and not what they did. And I think as Christians, we need to take on this type of mindset. We need to stop identifying ourselves by what we do. Anybody ever been identified as a sinner because you sinned? I want you to know that you're not a, if you're a Christian, you're no longer a sinner, even if you sin, because you're not identified by what you do, but who you are. You were a saint. When you got saved, you were made a saint, independent of your actions. As Christians, we're not righteous because we act righteous. Thank God, because I don't always act righteous. I don't know about you guys, but there are times that I've not acted righteously. There have been times where I'm like, Lord, if I can just be heathen for a couple minutes, I'll take care of this problem. I'll be right back afterwards. Anybody ever thought that way? Or is it just me? <laughs> but the truth is that we're not righteous because we behave righteously. But we behave righteously because we are already righteous. We live out who we actually already are. You remember in 1 Corinthians, Paul was 
talking to the people and he laid out this laundry list of all these sins, you know, fornicators, idolaters, um, adulterers, all these, these lists of people that won't get into heaven. And you're like, when you're first reading this, you're like, man, he's pointing out all these people's failures and because they've made a mistake, they're not going to get into heaven. But he ends it with, such were some of you. Basically what he was saying is, that's who you were, it's not who you are. Quit acting like who you're not. When, we, when Christians sin, they're acting out of place. They're not acting like who they are. It should, we should be, when we see a Christian sin, we should actually be a little bit shocked by it. Not in a condemning way, not like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you did that. But in the sense of like, that's just not who they are. Have you ever known somebody that you've got to know them pretty well, you know their character, and they, they act out of character and it's kind of weird? When a Christian sins, that's what it should be like. Because that's not who we are. So this morning as we go through the scripture today, that's what I want to focus on, is focusing on who we are. Because I think as Christians, we need to understand who we are and behave accordingly. And matter of fact, it'll just naturally happen as you become aware of who you are in Christ. Your behavior will change. But if you're trying to change your behavior based on a list of do's and don'ts, if you're trying to, to do it based on your actions to achieve something, you're never going to get there. We need to stop trying to attain holiness and attain righteousness, living towards these things, and instead we need to start living from them. Amen? Amen. In Matthew 4, 1-10, through 10, it says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him shall you serve. One of the most effective, effective attacks of the enemy on your life is for him to begin to question who you are. Ultimately, every attack of the enemy is basically questioning who you are. It's of this nature. Because if he can get you to question and doubt who you are in Jesus Christ, who you've been made to be, if he can get you to doubt even for a moment, then he can begin to manipulate you into doing what he wants you to do. And the funny thing, and not the funny thing, the the truth of the matter is, (laughs) just pulled a Joseph. And the funny thing is, but it's not really that funny, is that everything that the enemy is going to get you to do is going to be in contrast for what the Word of God has for your life. See, that wasn't funny at all. It was just the truth. When Jesus was in the wilderness, the first thing the tempter comes to do, the first thing the devil comes to do, is question who he is. What's the first words he says to him? If you are the Son of God. And that's going to be the same thing that happens to each and every one of us when the devil begins to tempt us. He's going to say, if you really are saved, if you really are a child of God, 
If you really are loved, if you really are victorious, if you really are pure, if you really are holy, He's going to question who you are in Jesus Christ. Because He wants you to doubt all of those things. He wants you to say, am I really? Could you imagine if Jesus would have been like, what if I'm not the Son of God? I got the, I'm standing in front of the devil. What if I'm not who I think I am? If he had doubts, then the enemy would have been able to manipulate him. The enemy would be able to get him to do these things that he wanted him to do. The next thing the devil is going to do when he questions your identity is going to offer you something that you already have. You'll look here, he says, if you're the Son of God, command these stones to be loaves of bread. But Jesus is like, I already have plenty to eat. I live off the word of my Father. And then down here he says, you know what, if you'll fall down and worship me, I will give you this whole kingdom. Now how many of you know that Jesus is the Lord of Lords and the Kings of Kings? He already has this entire kingdom. This, this is already his. But the devil's like, you know what, if you'll fall down and worship me, I'll give it to you. But it's already his. The enemy's always going to offer you stuff that you already have. He's going to come down and say, you know what, if you do this, if, if you do this one thing, it's going to bring you joy. It's going to bring you happiness. But you know what? You already have the joy of the Lord. He says, you know what? If you do this, I'm going to bring you riches. But I want you to know that you're already rich in Christ. He's going to offer you things that you already have. But instead, what's Jesus do? Jesus doesn't fall for his tricks. He doesn't fall for these lies of the enemy as the enemy tries to tell him that he's not who he really is. What does he do? He answers with Scripture. I think this is one of the greatest examples we can, we can learn from Jesus is when the enemy comes at you, when temptation comes at you, when the world comes at you, when things are getting hard, things are getting tough. Begin to speak back with Scriptures. As Pastor Mike always says, don't tell, the, the, don't tell your, your, the, your God about your problems, but tell your problems about your God. And begin to tell Him what the Word says about these things. He says, if you're the Son of God, Jesus says, it is written. Once again, he says, if you're the Son of God, Jesus says, again, it is written. He begins to repeat Scripture back to the enemy. So when the enemy comes to you and he begins to condemn you, you can say, you know what? The Scripture says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you're feeling condemned, you say, you know what? There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. When he says, you know what, you're a coward, or begins to make you feel afraid, you can say what the Scripture says, for God has not given me a spirit of fear, but of power and love and sound mind. If he says you're a weak, or he questions your ability to accomplish something, you can say, I can do all things in God who strengthens me. And if he says you're not savable, or begins to question your salvation, you can say the Scripture says, for by grace I have been saved through faith. The Scripture says you're saved even if you don't feel saved, if you trust in Jesus Christ. And if He ever tells you that you're unloved or that you're unlovable, you can tell Him, you know what? The Scripture says that Jesus Christ came down and died on the cross for me because He loved me. The Scripture says that He knows the amount of hairs on my head. And the Scripture says that He knew me before I was formed in my mother's womb. He knew me by name. That doesn't sound like a person that's not loved. The goal of the enemy is to get you to doubt who you are. Because as soon as you begin to doubt these things, you'll do all kinds of crazy trying to fill a hole that was already filled by Jesus Christ. He's going to tell you lies and question who you are. 
But if you look at the Word of God, it'll tell you definitively who you are. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to question. You can be sure because the Word of God is truth. Amen? Amen. In Acts 19, 13 through 16, it says, Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. You know, this isn't the only time that this trick's been used. I was Shakespeare talked about the city of Ephesus, about it was a, a city renowned for its magic. And uh, in, his, in his comedy of errors, Shakespeare described Ephesus as they say, this town is full of such cosinage as nimble jugglers at the sea of the eye, dark-working sorcerers that change the mind, soul-killing witches that deform the body, disguised cheaters, pratting mountebanks, and many such like liberties of sin. This city was filled with dark stuff and people that were trying to do all kinds of tricks. And the reason I bring up this, this city is because that they, they found, they found uh, papyri, the, you know, the old scrolls, they found them that have what are called the Ephesian scripts, and, and most of them still survive to this day. And one of them in the, in the Paris Magical Papyrus number 574 found these words. This is a, a magical script. This is what the mages would use to cast out demons and do these things. It says, I adjure thee by Jesus, the God of Hebrews. Somebody in Ephesus, even well after this, was trying to use the name of Jesus in a magical ceremony to, to get demons to comply. Something I, I find interesting as I read this too is this was these, these old letters that says, I adjure thee by Jesus, the God of the Hebrews. Even back then, Jesus was known as God. But people try to question it today. And oh, he was just the, the son of God. He was, he's completely different. But Jesus was God. But even after this story, I, I would think if I read this story, I'd, I'd stop trying to use his name in vain. <laughs> you know, these guys get their butt whooped. And the thing is, is Jewish priests, they're no strangers to casting out demons. These were actually Jewish exorcists. This is what they did for, for their job in the, in the Jewish temple. They, they were doing this as part of their, of their service to God. In Luke eleven nineteen, it says, Jesus says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, whom do your sons cast them out? So it's obvious that the Jewish priests at the time, this is something that they did. They, they cast demons out of people. But the unusual part of this is that they were doing it in the name of Jesus. Calling on the name of Jesus was not something the Jewish priests did. And in this case, it's obvious that they had no part in that name. They had no relationship to Jesus. Therefore, they had no right to use his name. Matter of fact, because they, their relationship with Jesus was so minute, they just knew of his name, they actually had to identify Jesus by using Paul's name just so that the demon wouldn't be confused. Because they, they had no relationship to Jesus. They didn't have a relationship with him. How I want you to know as a Christian, you can say in the name of Jesus. You can declare things in the name of Jesus. And the reason is because he's your Lord and he's your Savior. You have a relationship with him and, and you have been given the right to use his name. You see, imitating a Christian, being a good person, is not enough. 
you know, there's probably nothing wrong with these guys. They were probably good, upstanding guys. They were good Jews. But being good people isn't enough. You have to have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You have to have a relationship with the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Because if your identity is not grounded in Christ, the enemy is just going to overpower you. You can try to stand against them. These guys were doing a good thing. They were standing against this demon that was living inside of a man. And they say, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul serves. And he says, you know what? The demon says, you know what? I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but who are you? Who are you? And I'll be honest, I've read this, and I thought to myself, man, what if that happens to me? You know, I, there's been times we've been called to, uh, uh, to go out and, and pray for certain things and look at certain things, and, and uh, you know, my biggest fear was walking out there and, and the demon going, I know Jesus, but who are you? And there was a brief moment of fear, like, what if that happens to me? But then I recognized that the devil knows who I am. If you're saved, the devil knows who you are. There's, he's not going to ask you, who are you? He's going to know that you are one of the children of God. And if he asks you who you are, just answer. Be prepared to answer. Are you going to shrink back? Are you going to declare and proclaim that you're a child of the Most High God? You're an heir to His kingdom. That you've been given authority to heal sickness and cast out demons and proclaim forgiveness. Are you going to tell them that I am strong? I'm forgiven. I'm justified. I'm redeemed. I'm victorious. I am loved. Or are you going to shrink back? When the devil asks you who you are, go ahead and tell him. Ask him how much time he's got. You see, when we can answer with confidence and boldness who we are in Christ, no matter what circumstance, no matter what scheme of the enemy, no matter what problem comes your way, when you can answer with confidence and boldness who you are in Christ, it is the enemy that must flee. It is those situations that must change. And you stand strong in who you are because the truth is you are who He made you to be. You are righteous. You are pure. You are perfect. You are holy. You are redeemed. You are qualified. You are justified. You are loved. You are strong. You are empowered. You are victorious. You are a conqueror. You have overcome the world because the one that is inside of you has overcome the world. Amen? In Romans 1.7 it says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You notice that he refers to the Christian as saints. In 1 Corinthians 1.2 it says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Once again, Paul refers to them as saints. As I was researching this and looking, I went into my, my Bible software that I have and I typed in the word saints. And it showed, the word saint or saints shows up 62 times in the New Testament. In the English Standard Version translation at least, 62 times. And I was looking at it, you know that not one of them refers to a special type of Christian? a super person or, you know, a super Christian or a super holy Christian or, or the leaders. or It doesn't refer to saints. It's anything but those who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, Paul right here makes it pretty clear. He says, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, 
called to be saints. If you're sanctified in Jesus Christ, you're called to be saints together with all those, that includes us, all those, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. The only, the only rule to become a saint is to call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be sanctified by Him. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. Being a saint is not a title, it's an identity. The two identities that you see in the, in the New Testament are sinner and saint. You're one or the other. And it has nothing to do with the things that you do. It has to do with who you are on the inside. If you've not been saved, you're a sinner. Even the person that lives the most perfect life, the nicest little old lady, doesn't do anything wrong. If she is not saved, she is a sinner. And even the worst people, people that have committed just atrocities, murder, all that kind of stuff, if they give their life to Christ, even though they've done horrible sins, they're no longer a sinner. They are a saint. We are no longer who we are. We've been remade into the image of God, and we are now saints. What I like about this one, and what I think points out the most about this one is, remember the we talked earlier about Paul saying, then uh, listing off a long laundry list of reasons why people that wouldn't get into heaven, the adulterers, and that actually is in First Corinthians. He's talking to this church. Matter of fact, the First Corinthians was not known as a uh, the model of perfection as far as the church goes. If you read the two letters that Paul writes to them, they got some stuff going on. And uh, they're just like every other church in America or in, in this world. You know what? Churches aren't perfect. They got some stuff going on sometimes. But he, he lists off this long list of stuff saying, basically, why are you guys doing this stuff? It's not who you are. So these people are obviously still sinning on occasion. They're actually sinning enough that Paul feels the need to write a, a letter to them to correct what's going on. And you know what he still refers to them as? Saints it had nothing to do with what they're doing but because they had been born again in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. I love this verse. The old has passed away. The new has come. If you are in Jesus Christ, you are brand new. You know that person that you used to be? Yeah, he was a sinner, but he's dead and gone. He was buried with Jesus Christ, and you were remade on the inside. You've been fundamentally transformed in a miracle that took place the moment that you accepted Jesus Christ into your life by faith. So if we begin to live our lives after we've been saved, trying to attain righteousness by the way that we live, if we put the the, the cart before the horse... It's like the, Jesus described it as the, the cup that was washed on the outside but was filthy on the inside. It's like we would all be just blown away if somebody tried to sell us a car as brand new. This is a new car, but it was built in 1989 and all they did was clean it up, put a new paint job on it. Because there's more to being new than just looking pretty. I want you to know that as Christians, we have been made completely brand new. We're not refurbished. You know, we're not on, on discount on a website because we've been sent back and fixed up and made ready to sell again. We are brand new. 
It was a miracle that took place inside of you. And everything that we do, everything that we live from, from that point is from that place of being made perfect in Jesus Christ. Getting a hold of this, getting a hold of what's happened inside of you is essential to transforming the way you live your life. If you don't believe that you've been transformed on the inside, you're going to continue living the way that you've always lived. But as soon as you recognize and your faith begins to grow in this area, you'll find that naturally you'll begin to live a holier life. Because you begin to live who you are. Your body catches up to who you are. Amen? In Ephesians 2, 4-7, it says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, in our natural birth, we were born corrupt. Everybody in this world, when they are born, they are born a sinner. They are born broken. They are born corrupt. But having a purified soul is another change that happens to us when we are obedient to the truth. You know, as Christians, we have, we have a, a soul and a spirit. Our soul is our mind, will, and emotions. Our spirit is what's placed inside of us by God, what's given to us. We get a new spirit inside of us when we get saved, but sometimes our soul takes a little while to catch up. You know, some people, when they get saved, it's like a, a, a light switch transforms them in their life. It wasn't quite like that for me. It took a little time for my, for my mind to catch up, my, my soul, my will, my emotions to catch up with what had been done on the inside of me. But the more I studied, the more I spent time in the Word, the more I looked and read what the Bible said about me, God said about me, that began to live out in my life as Christ lived through me. But our soul gets purified when we get saved as we are obedient to the truth. As we read the Word of God and we're obedient to it, we see who we are. Our soul gets purified. And that obedience to the truth is to put our faith in Him. What does it mean to be obedient to the truth? To put your faith in Him. To trust Him. Disobedience to the truth is trying to accomplish what He has already accomplished through our own means. When we try to, to live good so that we can you know, become righteous. You ever heard people say that, oh, I can't go back to church. I've got to get some things right with God before I can go back to church, before I can do these things. When we're trying to do it in our own power, that's disobedience to the truth because i got news for you. You don't have the power to change your life. If we had the power to change our life, we wouldn't need Jesus. We just do it on our own. So it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Isn't it good that even before we were saved, God loved us? When we were dead in our trespasses, God loved us. When we were enemies of God, God loved us. As Dean Bractus was saying last night, isn't that good news? That's good news. It says, by grace you have been saved. You've been raised up with Him in heavenly places. And I'm on scripture, aren't I? There we go. (laughs) That's why they didn't make any sense in my head. (laughs) It says, having purified your souls (laughs) by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Sorry, this is 1 Peter 
122 through 23. I was wondering why my notes weren't quite matching up and my head was a little confused. 1 Peter 1, 22-23, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere love, love one another from earnestly from a pure heart. Like I said, a purified soul is a result of being saved. Since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Isn't it good to know that, the, that we've been born again of an imperishable seed? Something that cannot be corrupted, something that cannot be destroyed. In Christ, when you're born again, this is forever. As long as you remain in the faith, this is forever. It cannot be taken away from you. The devil can't steal it from you. This world can't steal it from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. As long as you remain in the faith. It's not going to change over time. God's not going to change his mind. You know, when you first got saved, I was, I was really digging you, but eh, not so much anymore. You see... That's how men think. The words of man change over time. I look at this country and I look at, at our forefathers and their, their choice to separate church and state. The words of man said that we needed to separate church and state. And the idea that they had was that, so that the state wouldn't interfere with our church. That was the whole purpose. There was, there was no purpose behind that saying that the church couldn't be involved in government. But that's what we've taken it to mean today. Over time, we've tried to change the words of these men. You know, if they didn't want church involved in the state, then why would they mention God so often in their documents? But now we've taken it as, oh no, the church can't be in one. But somehow, the government can be involved in our churches. Fortunately, it's not, they don't have complete control, but they're slowly trying to inch their way in and, and, and control how we can do things and how we can operate as churches. But that wasn't the idea behind what the forefathers wrote. But the words of man have changed over time. But I want you to know the word of God never changes. It is an incorruptible seed that will never change. The Bible says that God is the same today, tomorrow, and yesterday. God never changes. What He says is true, and it's going to remain that way. In John 1.13, it says, We were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. I want you to know that when you get born again, you are now born of God. And like I said, He remains the same forever. So as long as we remain in Him, we will never change. Our identity can never change. We will remain saints. Amen? Amen. And now we'll read the scripture in the right place. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 4-7 through 7 says, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You know, in Christ Jesus, you are alive. You've been made alive again. You are loved and been made alive. The enemy wants to tell you that you're unloved. The enemy wants to come and question the love of God in your life. You're not loved. You're unlovable. Don't you know the things that you've done? He's going to 
point out your mistakes and your failures and tell you that's why no one can love you, especially God. God can't love you because you've done those things. But the truth for us is that God not only loves us, but he has an immeasurable great love for each and every one of us. And Dean was talking last night, he says, you know, that when you're, when you're born, God sets aside a portion of love for you. And I thought it was a great analogy of, of basically saying that you're not stealing love from somebody else if you want to receive the love of Christ. There is enough for you. God's love is immeasurable, and it's inexhaustible, and it's inextinguishable, which means that it can't run out and it can't be put out. God loves you. And the Bible says that even while we were dead in our trespasses, He had this love for us. Which means that our love is not based on what we do. Because even when we were doing stupid, God loved us. And if He loved you then, that's not going to change after He's picked you up and put you back together, after He's put your feet on solid ground. His love for you is not going to change. Because it's not in what we do. Our, our actions, our accomplishments have nothing to do with the love of God for us. Matter of fact, God loves us in spite of these things. The Bible says that even our good deeds before we were saved were, were worthless. They were like unclean rags. So even if, you were, if, if you're not saved, even if you're doing these good things, they're not accomplishing anything in your life. Isaiah 64, 6 says we have been all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. You see, His love is not based on our deeds because even our good deeds mean nothing. Our bad deeds, our good deeds, they don't influence how God feels about you. It's like those of you who have children. Has any of you ever went, man, I can't believe how bad you just screwed up. I'm done loving you. Has anybody ever said that to your kids? No matter what mistakes they make, no matter what, that you still love your children. Your love for your children has nothing to do with what they do. When your children does great in school or they do great in sports, sure, you're proud of them and you're happy for them, but it doesn't, doesn't make you love them more. I mean, can you imagine... I guess there are some parents that think that way, and those kids have rough lives, but kids, the parents that love their children well, that's not the way that they think. Their love for you, our love for our children is based on who they are. They're our children, not based on the things that they do. And because of this love for us, because of this great love that God has for us, He's made us alive together with Him. And to be made alive with Him means that the old person that you were had to be put to death. That's why we do baptism. It's the, the, the picture of you being dead and buried with Jesus Christ and raising up out of the ground with newness of life. So when the enemy looks at you and he says, you know what, you're just who you used to be. Or when you have friends that you haven't met in a while and they're shocked that you're a Christian because they know who you used to be, you can say, that's not who I am anymore. That's who I was. I'm alive in Christ now. And when he says that, you know what, you're worthless, you can say, you got it wrong, devil. I've been seated in heavenly places. And it's this being alive. It's so that in the coming ages, it might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us. You know, the immeasurable riches of his grace towards us, 
It's the victory and strength and the holiness and peace and joy and hope. All these things that we have in Him. They are ours because He made us alive with Him. Amen? i got to get moving. Ephesians 1, 3-6 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us, the Beloved. You know, the, the enemy is going to try to tell you that you're not clean, that you're not holy, that you're dirty. He's going to tell you that you're tainted. And you know what? I think sometimes even ourselves we begin to think those same things about ourselves. We make a mistake. We, 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 ha- we fall down for a moment and we begin to tell God all these things we're going to do to make up for it. Because we feel like that somehow we have to make up for these failures. That somehow that the blood of Jesus wasn't enough to make up for this sin. And we're going to have to take care of it ourselves. We're going you know, to go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays. We're going to read our Bible more. We're going to pray more. We're going to be nicer to more people. And, and you know, God, if you'll just forgive me, I'll do all these things. And it's, a, it's kind of a silly uh, uh, request to make to God. When he's already forgiven you and his son. His son already paid the price. Matter of fact, it's a little bit egotistical to think that you can do more than what his son already accomplished. The truth is that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. God loved you. He chose you. This was always his plan. was for you to be saved. Every person in this world, God wants to see saved. He wants none to perish. From the beginning, He chose every one of us to live with Him, to have a relationship with Him, to be pure and holy. That's actually why God saves us, so we can be in relationship with Him. Because when you're unclean, when you're not saved, darkness has no fellowship with the light. But we've been made light in Him. In 1 Peter 1, 14-16, it says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conducts. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You know, before, we did stupid stuff because we didn't know any better. Sin had a hold of us in our lives. Like Paul said, Paul was talking to Rome. He says, you know what? I wanted to do the right thing, but I couldn't. And in our former ignorance, before we knew that we could be saved, before we knew that we could be made brand new, we did stupid stuff. But once you get saved, you're not ignorant any longer. You've been made completely free. You're no longer a slave to sin, but you're a slave to righteousness, which means that everything that you do is... is, is uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Everything that you do is controlled by, by your master. So when you were a slave to sin, sin made you do. Sin had control over your life, and it could cause you to do things. But now that you're a slave to righteousness, righteousness has control in your life, and it'll cause you to do righteous things. But it was our former ignorance of what God wanted for us that we did these things. But Peter says, "You know what? Don't be conformed to that anymore. That was old. That's dead and gone. That's the past." It's former. Don't do it anymore. But he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. 
since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And I read these words and I understand that, you know what? God is holy and we want to live a holy life for him. We want to, to imitate him. But I don't think that's what's being said here, especially when it says, you shall be holy for I am holy. It's not a, because I'm holy, you better do this stuff. But it's because I am holy and I've remade you in my son. Now you are, I am holy. I live inside of you, therefore you are holy. You're not working towards holiness. You are holy. Our holiness is not defined by our actions, but our actions are defined as a result of our holiness. In Colossians 1, 9-14, we'll find that we're qualified. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. He says that we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What is the will of God? The will of God is for you to be holy. The will of God that is none should perish. The will of God is that you would be whole and healthy. And the will of God is that you would preach the gospel. He was praying that they would have this knowledge of who they were. Because having a knowledge of God's will for your life is important. And His will for your life is for you to be all those things so that you can walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. If you know who you are in Christ, if you, if you have that knowledge and you begin to walk in that way. And he says, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, may you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. You know, it is, it is the strength that He gives you in His power that allows us to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. It is the strength that we're giving in His power that allows us to bear fruit for God. And then He goes on to say that we have been qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints of the light. Have you ever looked at, you guys have all looked for jobs before, right? You look at the job posting and there's a list of qualifications. If you want this job, if you want to get in, you've got to do these. You have to have this skill, or you have to have this experience, or you have to have this much schooling. It's a list of qualifications to get into that job. And if you don't meet those qualifications, it would be silly of you for to apply for that job because you're just not going to get it. You don't meet the minimum requirements. You know, there's also qualifications to receive in the inheritance of the saints. There's qualifications. You must be pure. You must be holy. You must be justified and redeemed. Basically, your balance sheet's got to come up to zero. Your balance has got to be blotted out. You must be righteous to receive the inheritance. It's a pretty hefty qualifications. Matter of fact, the law was just a list of all the qualifications you needed to get, to get into heaven to receive the inheritance. 
thou shalt not. A list of qualifications. If you've done any of these things, you got a problem. You see, if we were to try to do it on our own, none of us would ever live up to those qualifications. It would be impossible. Matter of fact, even if somehow you could live your life that way, which you can't, but if you could, you were still born broken. Because of the sin of Adam, we were born fundamentally broken. And we have to be restored to be in fellowship with Him, to be in relationship with Him. If we want to get into heaven one day, we have to meet these qualifications. And we're just not going to do it. But the Bible says, give thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The Bible says that God has qualified us in His Son. Because that's one of the biggest things the enemy is going to do is come and say, you know what, you're not qualified to do this. You're not qualified to get into heaven. You're not qualified to be saved. Look at these things that you've done. How could God let someone that's done this into heaven? And you can say, you know what, you're right. If it was up to me, if it was left to my own devices, I would never be qualified. But thanks be to God that He qualified me in His Son. It's an identity. Our identity is qualified nothing to do with our actions amen but if that's the case let's begin to live from that in, in romans eight thirty seven, it says knowing all these things we are made more than conquerors through him who loved us you are more than a conqueror in jesus christ the verse right before this in romans eight thirty five says who shall separate us from the love of Christ, shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Those are the things that want to separate you from Christ. But Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. All these tribulations, all these things that come against us, in Christ, we are more than conquerors. And when the enemy points out weaknesses or he tempts you, remind yourself that you are victorious. When he questions your victory, repeat the scripture to him. No, I'm more than a conqueror. You know, he'll tell you that you are a failure. The enemy is going to come at you with all kinds of lies. He's going to tell you that you are a failure. But in Christ, you have already conquered whatever it is he's selling. Amen? And then in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 through 57, it says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have the victory over sin and death. You know, death is a powerful motivational tool. Death has convinced people to do all kinds of things. And it's the ultimate payment for sin, right? The wages of sin is death. Ultimately, sin will kill you. But for the believer, death is not the end. Just as we listen to Dean Braxton ex- explain his experience when he went to heaven, when he was dead for an hour and 45 minutes, he went to heaven and, and saw heaven. He saw Jesus. He saw his family. But he said, you know, when I died, I expected to be terrified. I expected to be in pain and freaking out. But he says, you know what? As it was coming, I was just excited. I was going home. Because death has no sting for the believer. Death is not the end for the believer. He says he got there and it was just right. You know, it, it just, I began to think about, you know, when we die, oftentimes we're like, oh, what's going to happen? But it just gets better. We get to go be with our Lord. 
these scriptures here in, in uh, 54 through 55, 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55, this is how it starts. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on, immortal, Im- yeah, puts on immortality, basically when you get saved, it says, then shall come to pass a saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the believer, none of this has any consequence because we get to go on and live with Jesus. In life, we have victory in His Son. And in death, we have victory in His Son. Amen? And we'll go ahead and end with this scripture right here. As we've been talking about our identity in Christ. When the enemy comes against us and tries to question who we are. And we've been talking about how we should live from who we are instead of trying to live towards a goal. But in Romans 8, 34 it says, Who shall bring any charge against God elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. You know, we talked about our identity and who we are. And the Bible says, who will come against that? Who is going to bring a charge against you, against God's elect? If you are saved, you're part of God's elect. And who can bring a charge against you? Who can say that what you've done is going to cause you to come out of the grace of God? Who can, who can bring any charge against you? The devil cannot condemn you in any way. You know, this is one of those rhetorical questions. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The point is, is that no one can. The enemy, the world, friends, family, nobody can bring a charge against you because you've been made brand new in Jesus Christ. And then it says that Jesus intercedes for us. He is, he is standing before us. He is representing us before the Father. If anybody does try to bring a, a charge against you, Jesus is your lawyer. I mean, that's a good lawyer to have. I'm pretty sure that he's not lost a case yet. You see, the enemy's gonna gonna make charges against you. The truth is he's still gonna try. But he has no right, and the only way he can be successful is if you question who you are in Christ Jesus. His words, when contrasted to the Father's, are meaningless. They have no power, they have no truth. But the word of God is truth for your life. And the truth is, when we read the Scriptures, we find out who we are. Not who we are working towards being, but who we are. We find out that we are victorious, that we have been qualified, that we are holy, that we are worthy, that we are loved, that we're pure, that we're righteous. And if we are those things, let's choose to live like it. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go and stand to our feet.